Welcome to FinCast, the podcast series for the Financial Integrity Network. This is Juan Zarati, chairman and co-founder of Fin. Welcome back and welcome to episode 15. Looking ahead in 2019, we're going to look at the top illicit finance issues for the year. Why isn't the administration moving harder on sanctions? There's more of a military solution to this than most terrorist financing issues. Organizational structures as a key component for helping to develop confidence. White knights of illicit finance are a myth. They don't really exist. It's a direct attack on the, on the money laundering vulnerability. President Putin's reaction to any of these allegations in the past has been, prove it. With us to have this discussion are Dave Murray, Gail Fuller, and Eric Lorber, friends and colleagues of mine, uh, senior officials at the Financial Integrity Network, uh, and former senior treasury officials uh, in a variety of roles. Uh, needless to say, these are great experts in the space who are day in, day out, uh, looking at the key trends in the illicit finance space. So it's great to be with you all. All right, let's, let's do this for the listeners. Let's do a top five uh, set of issues to look at uh, for 2019. And let's start with a big ticket item, which is uh, what are the trends in in sanctions and sanctions enforcement? Um, We've seen over the last uh, year, year and a half, an administration that is incredibly willing to use sanctions aggressively, uh, to use it expansively on new types of conduct, human rights and corruption, a Congress that is very much willing to get into the weeds in terms of demanding uh, sanctions and sanctions enforcement, uh, look at the Russia program, um, and new programs that have really um, emerged as central to national security, as in the case of Venezuela. Um, so let's, let's just go around the horn and talk about what you're seeing in terms of the trends we should expect in 2019, what the listeners uh, should look for. Dave, let's start with you. Well, I think the first thing that listeners should look for is a continued focus on Iran and North Korea from the administration. And within those two programs, I think that the real focus is going to be is going to be evasion. It, you know, there's not a lot of headroom left in either one of those programs to expand the authorities, um, particularly with respect to North Korea. I mean, there's a full trade embargo from the United States with secondary sanctions that apply to every activity covered under that trade embargo. I mean, our own regime of secondary sanctions in many ways is more expansive than the UN sanctions regime covering North Korea. So there's not a lot of headroom to grow from the from the authority standpoint. So the focus to keep the pressure on really has to be really has to be evasion. Now, I think particularly with respect to North Korea, this also dovetails neatly with the administration's diplomatic approach because it's possible to continue to target evasion without upsetting diplomatic efforts in a way that's not possible if you're going after primary targets. So, for example, if if you're in the midst of a diplomatic negotiation, it could really upset those negotiations to continue to go after North Korean government officials, senior North Korean government officials. Evasion targets don't have the same implications. Right, they'll, they'll tend to be things that are outside of North Korea as opposed to things that are inside of North Korea. They will be several. There will be several more steps removed from the from the people who are actually sitting down at the table for the negotiations. So I think the focus is is really evasion. Gail, what do you think? You know, I think one theme to highlight, Juan, is probably related to what you touched on in your introduction, which is the rise in conduct-based sanctions that are related to corruption, kleptocracy, and human rights, and increasingly the connection that's being drawn between 
corruption and human rights. I think the most clear example of it right now is in the Venezuela program, where the most recent executive order, which was just employed for the first time, really gets into how the corruption there has stripped state assets to the extent that the government is no longer able to provide for people's basic needs, and it's become a human rights issue. The U.S. Treasury has explicitly made the connection between corruption and human rights, as has the United Nations, and there's growing momentum for sanctions programs related to these issues. I think that's important for our listeners because they're facing pressures that are new to them in terms of what they need to be considering when doing due diligence, when doing customer onboarding, when thinking about how they consider negative news and what's relevant and germane. And even the nature of transactions, right, as uh, the sanctions take on more the form of the Russia program, which looks at types of trade, equity, uh, debt, um, and, and the various vehicles that states are using to actually fund their operations. Exactly, which really expands the kinds of actors, frankly, that need to be interested and concerned about these issues as well. It's not just banks who have long had a focus on on anti-money laundering, counter-terrorist financing, conducting due diligence, but it's also other types of investors that need to be thinking about this. It's hedge funds, it's sovereign wealth funds. Um, it's really broadening the aperture here. Eric, welcome back to Finn. We're so happy to have you back. You just left the Treasury Department. Thank you, Juan. It's fantastic to be with you and, and Gail and Dave. Um, I'd like to add my uh, two cents. The first one, building off Dave's point, I absolutely agree that evasion activity is going to be a real focus um, of sanctions-related trends this year and focus of enforcement actions. And I think that it's important to note what this means um, for multinational companies and for the compliance community, because oftentimes this evasion activity is not taking place, obviously obviously, you know, in the country that is the sanctioned jurisdiction. So if you look back over the last eight or nine months in public speeches, in designation actions related to Iran in particular, there was a major focus of these activities that were taking place in places like Europe, throughout the greater Middle East, and including in East Asia. And so companies need to be on notice that there may be evasion activity that's happening in their jurisdictions, when initially, you know, you may think to yourself, well, I'm operating in a Western European country, what do I have to worry about regarding you know, an Iranian sanctions evasion scheme? And so I think that's a core, core area of, of potential, um, potential uh, real and, and maybe regulatory risk. Um, on the second, uh, second point, um, I, I do think one of the major trend lines we're going to be watching in a sanction space is, of course, related to Russia. And I think that the biggest thing to watch here is congressional action on this topic. Now, um, this administration, in particular the Treasury Department, has been aggressive in terms of designations. I think it's one of the most active programs that they have. But with that being said, Congress uh, doesn't seem particularly satisfied um, with with the, the administration's full response to Russian malign activities. And you have two major bills that are still live in Congress, Deter and DASCA, um, both of which contain significant escalatory elements, um, most mandatory, uh, that would be imposed on the administration. And I think that you know, depending on the prospects for either of these pieces of legislation, this could dramatically shift the sanctions landscape vis-a-vis -vis Russia, which, as we all know and have seen over the last couple of years, you know, has proven to be one of the most complex and, and challenging programs, both from a compliance perspective, but also from a policy perspective, because there are many targets that could be uh, that could be gone after in the Russia context, but there are many big downsides to going after those targets as well, because major banks, major energy companies are often well integrated into Western Europe and into the U.S. Uh, supply chain and the U.S. financial structure as well. Let me pull that thread just for a second because I think it's an important point and it's a fundamental tension and question for sanctions programs moving forward. And that is the willingness to target 
uh, and use a variety of tools against marketly market significant players, whether it's financial or commercial players. Can you can you touch on that, Dave, Eric, Gale, just quickly on what you see the trend being in terms of hitting big and important targets? Yeah. So this, uh, Eric, again, I think I think the. Uh the lesson I would take from this administration's actions and the Russia context on that is essentially that there's no target that's too big to sanction. And I think that the quintessential example of this is the Oleg Deripaska oligarch designation and the, the derivative designations of Rusal EN+, right? The, one of the world's largest aluminum manufacturers. Essentially, what OFAC did was it targeted Deripaska, who's of course a, a billionaire Russian oligarch, and it, as a result, or as part of that, that package, it also targeted um, Rusal and EN+, and then gave Rusal and EN+, um, a way out essentially. So basically told them, if you comply with these particular terms and you allow for OFAC to, to engage in aggressive oversight, um, we will no longer consider to, you to be uh, owned or controlled by an SDN and you can come off uh, the designation list. I think this is a model, frankly, for, for how OFAC can, moving forward, go after really big fish and then ensure that after the fact or when they do, that they're able to you know, make sure that, that world aluminum markets in this case or other important world markets are not in turmoil for, for the medium or long term. Right. We've watched the political debate around uh, some of the, the machinations of, of, of how that's worked out. That's exactly right. Gail, what do you think? Yeah, I would pick up on what Eric was talking about in terms of the need to, with some of these bigger targets, disaggregate the intended effects from the negative consequences. So if the, go- if the government doesn't want to have a negative impact in global aluminum markets, having that path to delisting is important and being able to use sanctions in a more surgical focused way. Um, Another example of that is the recent designations in Venezuela related to Globovision, um, one of the largest media companies in Venezuela. It's similar to previous designations that Treasury has issued where they've included or implicated press entities um, based on ownership. And Treasury has used its authorities to kind of immediately general license those and show that they can use their authorities in a really targeted way that still protects, for example, freedom of speech and fundamental American values. I mean, I think that that surgical use of the tools is important. Picking up on another thing that um, Eric was talking about, I think another thing that's important to consider is the path to sanctions relief. So the Rusal EM Plus case is an important one from this perspective. And thinking about the need to remember that sanctions are fundamentally meant to change behaviors, not to punish people. And if you want to change behaviors, you have to give someone a route to be delisted. There has to be an off-ramp. And I think with Congress getting more involved in sanctions, and we're seeing it in the Russia program particularly, but just in general, with the congressional role expanding, that raises questions about these off-ramps and how effective they can be. It also sends a lot of mixed messages to financial institutions about how they're supposed to be coping with these challenges. Dave? So, I mean, a fundamental pillar of the approach to sanctions is you should never impose more costs on yourself than you impose on your adversary. And your costs should be measured both economically and diplomatically. Uh, you know, I think what, what OFAC has done, and there's there's been a real evolution in the deployment of the sanctions authority. Um, you know, I mean, really going back to 2014 and the launch of the Russia program, where we had very narrowly tailored sanctions around debt and equity and technology um, to maximize the benefit of putting something on the list 
while minimizing the costs that are incurred for putting it on the list. Well, and can I add just one yeah. more thing on this? Sure. Because I think it's a really important point to make, and it follows up on Gail's reference to the Global Vision designation in the Venezuela context. And that is, you asked, you know, what's the administration's approach? You know, will they go after big targets? And I mentioned too big to sanction. I think the Global Vision example um, very clearly corroborates the lessons learned from Rusal EN Plus. And in fact, if you read the Global Vision designation press release, it actually explicitly says, uh, it essentially says that within the press release. It says, you know, if Global Vision wants to come off of the SDN list, you know, it can change its ownership and control structure to get off the SDN list. So you really see the lessons of, of you know, uh, of the Rusal EN Plus effort translating into other programs. So if you ask, do I think this is going to be something which we're going to see moving forward where there's going to be no target that's really too big to sanction? I think the answer is yes, and I think we've seen already two examples of Treasury's approach. Yeah, it's almost a, a, a pathway to restructure at the outset of the sanctions. Yeah, exactly right. interesting. All right, so that's, that's a lot to take in, and that's probably worth a, a deep podcast unto itself. Uh, but that's helpful, I think, to listeners. I think the second area we wanted to focus on, and I think trends, is looking at attention and enforcement on Asian uh, financial and commercial entities. We've obviously seen this in the trade context. We've seen this in, um, in the cyber domain. Uh, we've certainly seen, at the end of 2018, greater focus on Huawei uh, with the arrest of the CFO in Canada on what appears to be U.S. charges for sanctions evasion tied to the Iran program. Um, but you saw last year as well greater focus and attention from U.S. banking regulators, the Fed, the OCC, on Chinese banks, uh, their anti-money laundering systems, their sanctions compliance, in what appears to be greater attention to uh, Chinese and, and Asian entities, I think in part because of political pressure. You had the Department of Justice uh, uh, developing a China initiative that's specific to enforce against Chinese entities but also simply because of the size and exposure of these Chinese entities. You now have Chinese banks operating in the United States, North America, uh, the Western Hemisphere, Europe, uh, and, and major technology and other Chinese companies that have uh, expanded well beyond the borders of China. So their operations, their policies, their procedures, their adherence to local national laws uh, are now clearly in focus. And we've been talking certainly to our clients about the need uh, to recognize that there is going to be, be more sanctions and regulatory attention in the Asian domain. So let's just touch on that briefly, because I think that's an important trend to watch in 2019. Dave, you want to comment on that? Well, in the national security strategy, um, which I'm sure not very many people have read since it was since it was issued in late 2017. We did issue a client alert, though. We, that, did, do that a, we did do a client alert on it. What to That's look right. for in that strategy. That's right. Yeah. Um, look, I mean, a lot of those documents are written and then put on a shelf, collect dust, and then somebody puts them in their box when the administration is over and carries them out with them. Um, I think in the, in the case of China, you had a national security strategy that very much cast China as a, as a competitor and an adversary in some spheres. I think in this case, in the strategy, it was it was really the administration's inner voice coming out and coming out in public because I think we've seen them pursue a foreign policy with respect to China that that's very much reflective of and consistent with that strategy. Uh, so, you know, certainly I think that that this is an administration that is that is going to continue to that is going to continue to push on Chinese bad action that affects the United States. Yeah, and I, and I agree with you, and I think it's across the spectrum of activity 
and across the spectrum of, of authorities and regulators. And so it's not just the banking regulators, it's not just Treasury, OFAC, it's not just the SEC, but it's Department of Justice, it's going to be state uh, actors as well. Um, as part of a broader national economic security approach. That's right. And those actions may not be coordinated, and they need not be coordinated to have an effect. I do think that there is, to an extent, there are so many different moving parts um, in terms of the national economic sort of strategy and toolkit related to China right now, right? So you've got, obviously, the trade-related issues. You've got sanctions and AML-related issues, um, for, for example, with Huawei and ZTE. But then you also have um, export control-related issues and Commerce Department investment restrictions under FIRMA, et cetera. So there are all these different lanes that are sort of running um, running parallel to each other, and there's a lot of crossover between the two of them. And this is the, you know, the question of, oh, is ZTE um, uh, no longer going to be subject to the BIS enforcement ban because of the fact that there's an, a, you know, a desire to have some type of um, important uh, trade agreement struck with the Chinese or tariff, you know, tariff uh, setup struck with the Chinese. So it's really interesting to see how that works. But for compliance staff and for, for multinational companies, it actually presents a lot of different challenges because not only are you required to look, you know, typically we're all kind of sanctions people or AML people, typically, you know, uh, our colleagues are looking at this space, but you have to pay much uh, a greater greater set of attention to a much broader set of issues. I mean, to Juan's point, right? You've seen the Department of Justice actually go after a, a range of Chinese actors um, for economic espionage. Um, there has been less sanctions activity in that space, but it still directly implicates you know liability, particularly for for large multinational companies. And so, I think the real challenge. Um, or one of the real challenges for, for companies that are looking at this space and have exposure in East Asia is being able to track all these processes simultaneously and trying to figure out to an extent, well, how are they going to interact with each other? I think building on that a little bit, you know, having been in government as we all were, when we see this many authorities being brought to bear for a single problem set, what resonates with me is how many different agencies are going to need to be coordinating on that to make sure that they're moving in lockstep. And I think it's something that's interesting to keep an eye on to see how effectively all these different tools in the toolkit are being brought to bear toward a similar goal or toward the same goal in the furtherance of the national strategy. And I think that, again, ties back to what we were talking about with Congress's involvement in sanctions. It, it ends up being a mixed messages issue of sometimes these tools are probably not going to work together in perfect harmony, and sometimes there will probably be unintended consequences, and that just makes the job of any compliance official, multinational company, that much more challenging to try to navigate these different messages from different entities within the government as they're still trying to figure out what's coming next, what's the next thing I need to be worried about. That's a really good point. I mean, in this context, the administration and Congress are generally speaking on the same page in their approach to China. They're looking for sort of a, a ways to take aggressive and innovative action, which I think is the right approach. Um, and you know, it kind of breaks down. Um, it, 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 it's similar to other situations in which there's been general concordance with the administration and Congress, right? So, for example, DPRK sanctions. You know, in 2017, there were a number of bills that were sort of percolating through Congress that were all meant to increase the pressure on DPRK, which was also the administration's strategy at the same time. So, there are situations where there's general confluence between the executive and Congress, and this is one of those. And then, of course, there are situations where there seems to be a bit more tension. Here I'm thinking of, you know, the administration and, and some of the Russia stuff we were talking about earlier or the, or the prior administration um, and Congress's initiatives related to Iran. So in this situation, there's a little bit more clarity, yeah. but I absolutely agree with you that 
you know, how the tools are being used in conjunction with each other is one of the biggest questions uh, for, for multinational corporations to try to. Yeah, I mean, because even if we're address. at that point where, as you say, there's a little bit more convergence between at least two of our branches of government, maybe three branches of government on a topic, there still are just a lot of moving parts and it creates a lot of complexity and variability that can be difficult to understand. You know, each of these tools has its own set of consequences, but they don't operate independently entirely from each other. Uh, their consequences are overlapping for the U.S. national security and economic security, as well as for companies that are trying to navigate this situation. And I think just maybe a final point on this, where you may see a convergence of authorities. Um, we've been predicting this for a while. I don't think it's come to pass yet, but it may be in 2019 that you see this, which is a, a greater development in use of the cyber EO, you know, the April 1st, 2015 executive order that President Obama signed to target malicious cyber activity, which has been threatened uh, against Chinese entities, has been used in a variety of ways in the North Korean context, et cetera. But uh, that as a program hasn't really taken full form. And I just wonder if the focus on the Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S. on Chinese entities, the enforcement actions from DOJ and SEC, uh, the private sector's ability uh, to attribute attacks and, and uh, the benefits from those attacks, whether it's cyber-enabled economic warfare or otherwise, all of that puts pressure and creates opportunity for the Treasury Department to use that sanctions program to articulate a theory of the case around uh, cyber activity, especially from China, that's dangerous and, and relevant to national economic security. All right, let's shift then to a third issue, not wholly unrelated either, um, growing focus on corruption, kleptocracy, not just as a, a political issue internationally, but as a fundamental question of financial integrity uh, and requirements for actors worried about illicit finance. Um, Gail, can you talk to us a little bit about what you're seeing in the corruption and kleptocracy space and what we should expect in 2019? I mean, I think a lot of it traces back to the sanctions discussion we had earlier today um, in terms of what our clients need to be kind of thinking about. There's a convergence in terms of legislation around this issue. You know, the United States was on the leading edge of this, I think, both in terms of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act as well as in terms of the Magnitsky Act and the Global Magnitsky Program. But now there's momentum building in other places. You know, Canada has its own Magnitsky clone that's looking at some of these same issues. The EU is seriously considering similar legislation and the legislation that the UK has teed up to take in, take effect um, after Brexit, whenever that may happen, um, also takes these things into account. So I think that, you know, it's an increasing focus. And we can't really forget about the reputational risk element of this. You know, we talk about sanctions because we're sanctions and AML professionals here, but the reputational risk is very serious and it's very real. Because aside from all these legislative factors that are coming into play and these legislative pushes that are happening, there's also just a broader trend toward more socially responsible investing that's happening. And in general, in, in our space, what you've seen has been a focus on politically exposed persons and related parties and further evolution of that. You know, there's, I think in 2019, the likelihood of uh, more developed lists around PEPs and, and related parties which is interesting, and development of some new authorities, uh, or at least the acceleration of their use. For example, the unex uh, unexplained wealth orders in the UK, I think, uh, is a fascinating development and probably something we're going to see the British government use uh, more and more uh, to investigate uh, corruption cases. 
And to pick up on a point that Eric made earlier and the one that you just made about the UK and the unexplained wealth orders, another thing to be considering is how the kleptocracy focus is really implicating what are considered major financial hubs in what are regarded as lower risk jurisdictions. So the UK is a good example. The US is a good example. The real estate advisories that we've seen FinCEN put out um, to try to get to the bottom of who is purchasing some of this luxury real estate in the United States is a part of this narrative as well. Gentlemen, anything anything else on corruption, kleptocracy for the listeners? The only thing I'll add to it is I think that what, what we've seen over the last year is a really interesting and impactful use of the Glomag authorities. Um, and But it also raises questions moving forward about who is going to be targeted under Glomag. I mean, Right, Glomag allows for the targeting of, of corrupt and, and those engaged in human rights abuse. Um, and the people who have been targeted thus far are, you know, frankly, people who, who have, who have you know, engaged in these activities and, and deserve to be. Dan Gertler, um, members of the, you know, of, the, of the Myanmar military who have been involved in persecution of uh, the Rohingya. But there are so many people out there, right, who are engaged in activities such as this. So the question in my mind is always, Treasury has limited resources. Who is going to sort of filter up to the top level of we need to go after those people and we need to target them because it'll be impactful and because it may send a message? So that, in my mind, is an interesting sort of sanctions AML um, confluence question that's going to play big, I think, in 2019. Yeah, and I've often wondered at what point that convergence would play out in the North Korean and Chinese context. That is to say, um, further targeting or at least discovery of where North Korean Chinese uh, human rights violations and corruptions mix, whether it's with respect to treatment of workers or particular sectors, or whether or not the gaze of the U.S. Congress uh, grows uh, starker with respect to Chinese human rights abuses. For example, the detention of the Uyghurs, uh, which got a lot of attention in 2018, um, and whether or not that begins to filter into the sanctions programs and some of the targeting is, is an interesting question. You know, another important thing to remember on this theme, you brought up politically exposed persons, Juan, and that's the obvious go-to when we're talking corruption and kleptocracy. But it's also important to think about their front persons and their networks. And the Global Magnitsky Act, as Eric was discussing, really went after networks. So Dan Gertler was put on the list, but so were several of his companies. And there were people put on the list because of their involvement in the Odebrecht scandal. And they weren't government officials. They were people who were involved as middlemen in passing bribes. And so the implications of that are really huge because they bring in these centers that are considered low risk for illicit finance. They bring in these people who are maybe professionals, professional um, money launderers, as we call them. Um, so I think that that's an important thing and a challenge for financial institutions as well. It's not just the politically exposed persons. It's their networks and the people whose names they use to hide behind. And maybe even the institutions that they prefer to use. We saw that with uh, Banco Privada, the Andorra case, mm -hmm. where the third-party money launderers uh, are targeted uh, in the context of a financial institution that they're leveraging to be able to access capital or to, to hide assets. Yeah, I mean, I think third-party money launderers is a whole nother topic for another podcast, but potentially a good one. Um, the Financial Action Task Force, of course, put out a paper on that very topic, and I think it's becoming more important. I think that a lot of the illicit finance actors are becoming more sophisticated in turning to inside assistance of professionals. All right, let's turn uh, to our fourth uh, top issue to watch for in 2019, the fintech and the regtech space. Um, this has been going uh, hot and heavy uh, in terms of development of new technologies to make uh, anti-money laundering uh, and sanction systems more effective, uh, to use data more effectively, to leverage uh, analytic tools and artificial intelligence. 
uh, more smartly. All of that's happening. You see it with new actors in the space. You see it with established actors trying to leverage technologies. You see it with major financial institutions experimenting with everything uh, from blockchain uh, networks in the trade finance context to um, even thinking about uh, dealing in cryptocurrency or, or trading in cryptocurrency. So um, the, the fintech, regtech space is huge. And certainly at Fin, we're focusing quite a bit on this, looking at, at key partners we can work with, as well as trying to drive uh, even a utility model for how we think about uh, anti-money laundering and uh, countering the financing of terrorism uh, uh, controls and, and regimes. Um, but let me, let me just do a quick uh, tour de table of the three of you in terms of key issues to watch in the fintech and regtech space, because obviously this is going to remain hot, it's going to remain important to the industry, uh, and it's going to be something we're focused on. Dave, do you want to take a shot first? Yeah, so look, I, th I think in the fintech space, I think one of the major issues to focus on is the increasing role of fintechs in consumer payments. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I mean, that's really changed over the last 20 years. Um, and I don't think we have a regulatory regime that's quite reacted to that yet. Um, it, you know, I mean, we have a, many of the fintechs end up fitting into the MSB slot, right? And the MSB regime that we have was very much based on an idea that MSBs handle occasional customers. It's somebody bringing cash into a into a store, and then there's going to be a payout at a store somewhere else, probably in a different country. Yeah, when most people think about money service businesses, they think about Western Union. That, or that's exactly ground. right. Yeah. Um, but you know, really, increasingly, they should be thinking about PayPal. They should be thinking about they should be thinking about companies that have put themselves into that into that consumer payment space and into that retail payment space. And Square and and, and uh, absolutely other payment providers. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so you know, I mean, the 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 shift from banks being the guardians at the gate um, for our retail payment systems. To MSBs being the being the gatekeepers, that's a that's a big shift that a regime hasn't reacted to yet. Fascinating, fascinating. Gail, any thoughts? Yeah, I think one important thing to watch in this space is the signals coming from the policymakers. I mean, I think there are, and Finn is one of them, a lot of companies that are really excited about the developments in this space and wanting to try out some new things in this space. But financial institutions, in particular, haven't always felt comfortable dipping their toe in uh, because this is new and because they're worried that you know, by, by implementing new technologies, they might just uncover new problems. And I think that the U.S. Treasury came out with some guidance recently in concert with the, some of the supervisors to really reassure financial institutions that you won't be punished if you find problems by employing these new technologies because it's important to look at the way that financial technologies can improve the compliance landscape as well. And so giving safe space and sending signals that it's okay to try these new things is really important. Yeah, and I, and I think in 2019, one of the interesting developments we're likely to see is that uh, regulators will get more involved, I think, in a sort of new technology model validation, right, uh, to allow for some of these new tools to be used uh, as alternatives to, to past tools and methodologies. I know this is something you've followed a lot, the regulatory sandbox concept, um, where different governments can actually create sort of a space in which to test out these innovations. And we've seen that in a few limited contexts, uh, the UK being one of them. I think it's something that's going to spread to a lot of other markets. Eric? You guys, uh, the perils of going third uh, down the line, <laughs> uh, you guys steal all my, all my ideas. But I was actually also going to touch on the FinCEN uh, Federal Banking Regulators Innovation Policy um, from early December 
uh, early December of 2018, because I do think it's really important. Um, but what I'm actually most interested in looking at is, or, or, or seeing is, not just the pilot programs um, that financial institutions put into place that will allow them to essentially you know, test some of these new technologies, but then also what the how the regulatory expectations and the market expectations develop as a result of the success or failure of some of those pilot programs, right? Because some are probably going to be more effective than others, and there could easily be the, a growing sort of consensus of this is what best in class looks like in terms of new technologies as applied to compliance programs with AI or, or, or whatever other types of technologies that are going to be used. And seeing where we end up at the end of 2019 for a shifted regulatory and 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 ex- shifted regulatory and business expectation for what constitutes best in class. I think it's going to be really informative. It's great. Well, that shifts then to our fifth topic, which is wholly related, um, which is the uh, further evolution of the crypto economy. And by the crypto economy, uh, we're talking not just about cryptocurrencies or virtual currencies like Bitcoin and Ethereum. Uh, but also the the rails of the system, the the blockchain technology that under underlies it, uh, payment providers and even uh, financial institutions that are trying to leverage dimensions of that technology. Um, this I think is a is a key space to watch uh, for a couple of reasons. One, there continues to be uh, law enforcement and regulatory attention to this in a fairly fundamental way, in part because you've got consumer fraud issues still at play. Um, you've got uh, mass amounts of, of, of capital and volume flowing through uh, the crypto uh, economy with wild fluctuations in value, as we've seen uh, over the course of the last uh, 12 months. Um, but you, you also have uh, experimentation, experimentation in the private sector with how to use these technologies responsibly. You've got actors in the space. Uh, listeners know I'm a senior advisor to Coinbase, who I think are, are, are legitimate big uh, strong actors that are trying to build a, an effective ecosystem in the space and, and usefulness for for uh, virtual currencies uh, beyond speculation, um, and you also have um, uh, jurisdictions that are trying to figure out how do they actually use these tools? How do how do they use them for payment purposes? How do they use it uh, as a as an alternate to a fiat currency or as a f- um, uh, fiat backed uh, a currency to to allow for certain utilities? So. This is a really interesting space because I think there's going to be more enforcement attention, uh, some regulatory allowances, and more jurisdictions that are going to be willing uh, to play in the space, like Estonia and Malta. Uh, we've seen a little bit with Liechtenstein, the Abu Dhabi global market. Uh, Gail, we, we met with them talking a bit about this. There are going to be more jurisdictions that are willing to play in the space in some interesting ways. Um, but I wanted to sort of pulse you three on, on what you think about that. Um, Eric, let's start with you. Give you the chance to, to speak first. I do think, uh, and I appreciate being being given the chance to go first. I can <laughs> I can have my idea out there as the, as, the, as the marker. Unbridled. Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the most interesting areas within the sort of the crypto space to me, and this comes from my background, sort of more on the sanctions side, more on sanctions focused, is just how focused I actually think the Treasury Department is and OFAC is on the use of these tools for for sanctions evasion um, and related types of activity. I mean, you've seen. You know, over the last year alone, so beginning of 2018, quite a few um, different types of, of guidance and regulations that have come out related directly to cryptocurrency, right? So obviously you had the executive order in early 2018 um, targeting Venezuela's use of the Petro, right, their cryptocurrency. But maybe what was even more important 
for the broader ecosystem and the broader context were the OFAC um, uh, FAQs that accompanied that, um, that executive order, and there were a, a number of them that came later as well, that just sort of laid the marker for how, how Treasury is thinking about a lot of these, um, a lot of these concepts in the sanction space, right? So we had the definition of digital currency. You had, you know, an OFAC question addressing, well, if, if I hold, uh, if I hold a piece of digital currency and and I find out that it's, you know, a property of an SDN, what am I supposed to do with it? Like, how do, how do I block a piece of digital currency? And so there's really this push through um, thinking through what the practical implications of of the sanction space. Uh, look like for, for the for the crypto economy, and I'll also say as well that OFAC is clearly also focused on evasion activity um, by malign actors. I mean, I think it was in mid November, late November, where um, OFAC pursued or, or did a, a designation of a number of Iranian individuals um, who had been implicated in ransomware schemes that were using cryptocurrency as the payment mechanism. And so it's clear that OFAC is, is focused on this, not just from kind of a, let's define what it looks like and define what business needs to do, but also from an enforcement perspective. Gail, Dave, any thoughts? You know, I'm glad that you mentioned the Abu Dhabi Global Markets Authority, because I think that one area of focus in cryptocurrency is related to how it's going to be regulated by states. It's sort of surprising to me that there isn't a more mature model. Abu Dhabi Global Markets Authority just put out their legislation on the topic, which you know, is great. They're on the leading edge of this. Mexico just passed a law on the regulation of financial technology as well. And the U.S. probably has the most mature regime here. But there's still, globally, this is still a discussion that's very much in the nascent stages. And there's a lot of room to carve out what the best practices are going to be in terms of managing the risks that are associated with this. I also always like to make sure that we're not overstating the illicit finance risks that are associated with virtual currencies at this point. I think there's a temptation to think that because they're new and because they provide an alternative to the dollar that people will flock to them. But I think some of the limitations that you mentioned earlier, Juan, about the volatility, about the market cap on these virtual currencies really limit their efficacy for illicit actors and raise the risk of using those sorts of channels. So obviously we see it happening, um, particularly in the cyberspace, like Eric mentioning the ransomware example, and in the dark web with drug sales, things like that. But you know, I think that just as they're not there yet for the licit economy, they're not there yet in terms of the threat they pose for the illicit use either. Great point, Gail. Dave? Yeah, I mean, look, the, the proportion of illicit activity in these is is alarming, um, and it demands it demands some attention. But you know, the, when you compare the volume to the volume that's going through the banking sector, for example, um, I wonder sometimes if our resources wouldn't be better allocated to continuing to clean up the banking sector. And you know, I think we get a lot more bang for our buck if if we could get legislation on shell companies. Um, rather than more legislation trying to address trying to address blockchain-based technologies, um, you know, I mean, with that said, I, I think that it's I think that it's going to be difficult for blockchain-based technologies to really get a toehold in the payment space. I mean, when we think about it, there, there are really only a handful of payment systems in the world that have significant volume in them, and most payments run through those run through those systems, and a number of people have tried to enter that space. Um, and a number of people have failed to enter that space. Uh, so I, I think it's going to be tricky for the for the blockchain-based technologies to to find a market, find a licit market, and get a toehold. Yeah, and and it's a great point. And I think 
there's there's always been sort of a big bang theory to uh, cr the crypto economy or virtual currencies taking over the formal financial system, whether it's replacement of fiat currency or replacement of the payment system. Uh, and I agree with you, at scale, just not possible and not possible to do all at once. What's interesting to watch, though, I think, is whether or not in particular ecosystems or particular sectors, you see the utility of crypto uh, that, that could be useful on all fronts. We've had discussions, Finn's been a part of, of these discussions uh, with think tanks here in Washington, uh, looking at how crypto can be used in the Venezuelan context to get resources to those in need. And you've got the NGO community uh, turning to crypto as an alternative, given the, the currency fiasco in Venezuela. Um, and the concerns around corruption and sanctions, evasion, and money laundering concerns. And so thinking about sort of a closed ecosystem and the use of virtual currencies to actually uh, meet policy goals and to meet human needs is an interesting example of where you could have these ink blots of, of utility uh, that over time become interesting and useful, but don't take us to scale, to your point, Dave. All right, well, that's a, that's a great sort of five set of issues to, to watch for, a whole set of trends and, and activities and enforcement in the sanction space, attention and enforcement in the Asian banking and commercial sector, a continued focus on corruption, kleptocracy, a hot and innovative fintech and regtech space, um, and a crypto economy that's still in evolution, but will no doubt evolve further in 2019. Let's close this out, uh, especially for listeners who, who are gripped by your insights. Um, let's do quick lightning round. Uh, in 30 seconds, a wild card or issue you think we should focus on in 2019 or watch out for. Eric, let's start with you. Yeah, so obviously a number of our, uh, of our listeners are in the compliance community. And I think that one wild, not wild card, but one trend we should be paying attention to um, is the lessons communicated uh, from Treasury and from OFAC um, through various items like enforcement actions and speeches. And what I'm thinking of here is you've seen a number of, um, of enforcement actions come out in recent months, and they appear to have more clear lessons about what constitutes sort of best practices for compliance in that particular space. And so I would really advocate um, our listeners to, to keep watching those enforcement actions as a way to understand you know what they what what Treasury is signaling about what they what what they should be doing, and the second component to that is very similar. Is um, senior Treasury officials have have been very forward leaning in a good way um, about clarifying their compliance expectations in public speeches. I know there was a speech in February of 2018 at CIFMA, um, and I think the Undersecretary gave a speech at the uh, ABA, ABA conference in early December um, of 2018 as well, which really sort of laid clear a lot of what our expectations, excuse me, a lot of what Treasury's expectations, always, <laughs> you, always, you always refer back sometimes, yeah. <laughs> uh, Treasury's expectations are in terms, of, in terms of compliance. And so I think that for the compliance community, keep watching the public statements and the enforcement actions as a way to understand um, what those expectations are and how they may shift over the next year. Uh, Gail. I'll keep mine really brief. Uh, this is one that I thought I was leaving for Eric during the FinTech RegTech discussion, which is the data privacy issues. So the EU's data privacy legislation and how that's going to interact with how we're able to implement financial technology solutions, um, AI solutions to bring those to bear in the anti-money laundering and sanctions evasion space. That's a great point. And I think the assumption, by the way, has been that they aren't in conflict. Uh, but I think over time here, we're going to see that there's dynamic tension. And so I think you're exactly right, Gail. Good, good point. Dave? Uh, I think the reputational risk is evolving. 
Uh, I think we're entering a reputational risk environment that is similar to the reputational risk environment immediately following the 2008 financial crisis, except where that one was really focused on banks taking what people thought were irresponsible credit risks or exploiting consumers. I think this one is much more focused on on illicit finance um, and tax tax evasion and corruption in particular. Um, I think that as the U.S. political season approaches November of, of 2020, I think that, that that environment is going to continue to, the reputational risk environment is going to, be, is going to continue to become um, more extreme for financial institutions. I think there's a greater appreciation among the general public for how illicit finance affects their lives personally. Uh, so I think that's something that, that people need to look out for and people need to account for when they think about their risk appetites right now. Let me just add my voice to a wild card, and it's uh, this concern that has been uh, overhanging the increased use of sanctions, which is whether or not we see an acceleration uh, to move away from the dollar to create alternate payment systems that don't touch the U.S. system to avoid uh, the, the gaze and the enforcement that comes out of the U.S., uh, whether or not the special purpose vehicle takes hold with respect to Iran in, in the European context, whether or not you see a convergence of crypto networks, for example, a, a Petro with a crypto ruble that creates a channel that's outside the formal system, uh, the uh, SWIFT establishing a Chinese uh, specific subsidiary, whether or not these things become accelerants uh, or catalysts to moving away from uh, uh, more of a dollar-based uh, financial system. Very hard to do for all the reasons the listeners know, the sickiness, the importance of the dollar as a trade currency and as a reserve currency, but something to watch because it's certainly in the atmosphere and we're going to see trends uh, that point to, uh, to movements away from the U.S. Now, you listeners know exactly why I love working with these three folks and everyone at Finn. Uh, we've opened the door a bit to some of the discussions we have in our firm, the things that we're looking at uh, for 2019, some of the issues we're talking to our clients about. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. Uh, this is the first of several podcasts we're planning for 2019. Thanks again for joining us on FinCast. We look forward to having you next time.